0: Hello, and welcome to ADHD Love Parent Talk, episode 37.
1: The one real difference is I don't remember not being ADHD, Mm. and I did have a brain injury when I was two, and I had always stemmed a lot of my issues on that brain injury, but then when my son was born without a brain injury, I'm like, oh, genetics. So I don't have the hindrance that many, many people in brain injury, where I could do this before my injury, I ran an office of 40 people, I could shop, Mm -hmm. I could do everything. And now that my TBI has happened, I cannot do those things and I'm struggling. And that Mm -hmm. differential of accepting your neurodiversity at this point versus before is really tough.
0: Hello, and welcome to the ADHD Love Parent Talk podcast, If you felt like you have been walking your path alone as an adult with ADHD or as a parent with children with ADHD, you are finally home. I interview parents and professionals, including doctors, coaches, educators, and so much more so you can not only learn more information about ADHD, I also want you to have tools that you can put in your toolbox as you're going through your journey. Hey, my ADHD family, welcome to another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk, where we talk about all things ADHD. Today, I have my guest, Catherine. We actually are going to be talking about her ADHD journey, and then we are going to get into her organization, Pink Concussions. I think this is a very important topic. It's a topic that has been coming up quite a bit, so I thought she would be a perfect person to actually walk us through this path. So,
1: Catherine, welcome. I'm so excited that you came on. I'm so excited to be here and I haven't yet in this format talked about my ADHD journey so I'm really excited to share with you. Oh that's awesome. So please tell the audience a little bit about yourself. I am 54. I live in Norwalk, Connecticut about a about an hour drive or a train from New York City. I am single, divorced 10 years after being with my ex-husband for about 24 years. We have three children, twins that are now 24. One was diagnosed with ADHD at the age in first grade. His twin brother was not. And then one is now 21. He was born two years younger. So I had three children in in two years, not really recommended, but (laughs) I didn't do anything else, but totally tried to keep them alive the first couple of years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's what we did not do daily baths. (laughs) We did wash downs. So it very much fit my pattern. I was a licensed, I was a social worker, not a clinical licensed clinical, but was a social worker up until the time they were born. And I'd work with trauma, PTSD, adoption, the adoption triad, and had a very ill mother and was guardian for her. So actually to be able to stay home initially with these three moving creatures was really great. I, I, that part I didn't struggle with where I first really hit my struggle was when having to get these three creatures to school on time with the right papers. Yeah. So that's kind of where I think my initial struggles really kind of kicked in.
0: Okay. All right. And then just tell us, so let's grow into that ADHD journey. So talk about what made you even think that you had ADHD and what made you decide to go ahead and get tested?
1: Once I got to fourth and fifth grade, I had a lot of trouble in school and my mother's not alive. So I can't, it can't really pull out, you know, it would have been very interesting to talk to her about this, Mm -hmm. but I was not interested in the topic while she was alive, but I struggled in school, but was very bright. That kind of mismatched. I was very good at arts. The teachers would have me do bulletin boards rather than sit in class. Or maybe I couldn't sit in class. I don't know. I did a lot of bulletin boards. I was very good with colored construction. (laughs) I was a pro. And then my mom, I remember being pulled out of school and suddenly arriving at a private school that had five to eight kids in a classroom. And it was Mm -hmm. in an old house that had like a, each of the rooms had fireplaces in them. Mm -hmm. So it was really a small environment. I, I did much better there and worked really hard. And by eighth grade, They were testing me because I was smart. But, you know, as a kid, you're like, hmm, you're testing me. The term I pulled out of that was dyslexia. Mm -hmm. That's what they pulled out. And I didn't find out until I was 40 after my diagnosis that at that point, the school had asked me to leave. And my mother, who had taught underprivileged and. Labeled in the '60s, whatever they were labeled in the Philadelphia and Boston school systems, she had kind of been the underdog for a mm-hmm. bunch of kids as a teacher. So she, my mom hit them full force. So <laughs> they couldn't extract me out, but I kind of stayed under. Pro, it was definitely That's under funny. protest of the teachers. And graduate worked really hard. You know, four or five hours of homework every night, mm-hmm. and I thought everybody else was doing the same. I don't think I emerged socially till I was probably a senior in high school, and then college was really hard without my mom to read my papers. And but I mean, I got through, and I had already been to graduate school. I learned if I liked the topic, I would do well in it, and if I I add um, drop period for me was going to as many classes as I could, looking at the syllabus, looking what the expectations were. There was this really cool class I remember wanted to take on Egyptian history, but I walked in and I saw the format wasn't for me. Okay, So I really would run around and move my. So I got, I, I was good at picking out what I could be successful at. And I was interested in South African history at the time, mm. divestment, apartheid, Nelson Mandela, those were all big themes when I was in, in school and important to me. So I did a, a minor in South African history because it was fascinating to me. So the boys start school and suddenly we can't wander around in the morning in our PJs for two hours because they want to, or be at the playground at 5 AM in the morning. Cause right, they can't right. sleep. We had to be there at a certain time with these, all these pieces like camping, you know, when you're taking children to school right. and I was privileged enough to stay home at the time. So I didn't have, and they had a number of health issues, but I still had trouble lining all those balls up. And it was first grade where they called out that my son was really, there, there were issues. So we had him tested. Okay. That result came back and it was a 15 page document. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it in the retrospect, I realized is cut and paste ADHD. He had ADHD and dyslexia, but I read the profile and thought this is either me Mm. Or I psychologically have just mapped myself to my, my son's issues and I need therapy. Yeah. So I went to the neuropsych who we had just paid 4,500 for this and said, mm. I need you to test me because I either need some deep therapy or this is me. And he hemmed and hawed. And, and I just said, I, you know I can't parent until you figure out if I'm intuitive or crazy. And so he did it. And he came back and said that my score, he he never he hadn't seen yet a parent child have such similar scores. Wow. He we both went on meds the same around the same time. And my son would go to the nurse and she at the time she was checking his pulse, which probably made him nervous to go to the nurse every couple hours. So his pulse was high. Mm -hmm. So we turned it off. We, we talked, stopped taking the medication, but I never told the teachers that he stopped taking medication. Mm. So everyone was prepared. He was taking medication. He took it for a day. He never took it again. I take the medication for two months. And then I go in to meet with the teachers. And they're like, he is doing so much better on medication. He is no really, way. we see so many differences in him. And he wasn't on medications. I was on medications. They're like, he's so organized. He has all of his homework. Why? So I tell that story because I think a lot of the time starting out medicating the parents might help. And I can say that I'm not sure what leeway the neuropsych have to say, hey, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So when I went back to the neuropsych, I said, look, my son's doing so much better because I'm on medication. is that great? And he was actually angry at me. He's like, so if your child was a diabetic, would you not give him his medication? Like I got no credit. Wow. There's no credit given. He was like, great. So you're still keeping this from your child. So my son started medication. We were both on stratera, which is non-stimulant. Okay. And he stayed on it till his senior year in high school. I am still on it. I've taken a couple of months off and I think it was a great benefit. His father and I had divorced by that time. And his dad really hated he was on meds and mm-hmm. really put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. of him to come off. He's still off today. I see some stuff that he's struggles, with, but he's been, he's of my three kids, the one that in first grade that we thought, will he ever live home and live independently? And he's, we have this kid on meds that it, it was a dark, rainy night. We were driving home from a late night, seven o'clock doctors appointment. We're so depressed. And that was the kid that went to Fordham. His freshman year was so organized. He sat in the lot. Library with three other kids and tutored them for twenty bucks an hour while nice. he was doing his homework. So he made sixty dollars an hour. Nice. He ended up having private clients, kids who had wealthy parents. Who, you know, dad would write a check for the week, and my son would help. Then he, by his freshman uh, sophomore summer, got a job working at a large investment firm as an intern. He made thirty thousand a year sophomore, junior, senior year. When he wasn't in school, he was in a suit and he would put on, get on the train in the South Bronx and go to Midtown or he'd go. I mean, he worked really hard, but he was always used to working hard. He's like, what am I going to do, mom? Hang around in the dorm. So he made money and then he graduated a semester early was hired by that firm. And is such a hard worker that anytime actually a woman goes on maternity leave, he jumps into their slot and he has now progressed. So that's amazing. two and a half years out of college, he's paid off all his college. He's bought his own car. He has his own apartment. He is the most launched of my children. And yet at first grade, he was the one with the multiple diagnoses that were like, he'll never live at home. And I think I've watched the other two face adversarial. They all face adversarial, whether it's a concussion or an assault or a loss of a friend or mental, I mean, like they all suffer something. I thought as a parent, we could protect them at least till they were 21. The one that had the ADHD and just got that early life lesson, it's going to be harder for you. You have to dig in and work hard. He is the one that's the most resilient
0: that is amazing. And that's really hope for a lot of parents who worry about the same exact things. So, when you both were diagnosed, what types were you guys diagnosed with?
1: It was 17 years ago. I think both ADHD. And we also, both his dad and I are sober at this point about 30 years. So, we were sober about 15 years when the kids were born, maybe 10 years when the kids were born. We knew addiction was a part of our bloodline. Okay. And there really aren't charts when two alcoholics or addicts create mm-hmm. children. The chart is like one parent with substance abuse disorder Gotcha. Uh, is a 50 chance. And when I've asked, you know, what if both parents, what if two alcoholics marry and have kids? What's that? And they're like, I don't know. It's off the charts. So we were kind of monitoring them to okay. see ad- addictive behaviors. That was more okay. of our focus in those years see. to see who. So. I remember my mother in law saying to me when he was about three, Oh, I hope you're not thinking of putting him on Ritalin. It's like, what? what? are you, you know? That's just kind of like one of those mother in law comments. Uh-huh. Like, I'll say something nice, but I'll launch a little grenade. <laughs> so obviously, other people knew of his motion, but I was the parent that I went and did all the field trips, and we went through a period of time where we had. It was short, but we had the app while they were in elementary school, we had the funds that I could stay home. Okay. And in those four or five years, I did all the field trips and they would always give me like the eight boys that nobody else wanted. Mm-hmm. And we would do the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I would have them through in an hour. We would like zip through and we'd be out on the playground. And yeah, you knew how to deal with it. You knew how to handle
0: <laughs> the kids.
1: I literally before the kids were born, there were a group of young boys in our neighborhood. They were about 12 and we were about, we were about 25, 26. And we were interested in children, but none of our friends had any. And so we kind of adopted these three boys that were all from different households. And I thought I was just the miraculous social worker. I would cook with them. We took them skiing. I was, you know, it was just because I shared the same diagnosis.
0: Right.
1: So if I look back, my very successful interventions were just mutual hangouts, right? Right. <laughs> right. That's too funny. That's so too it's funny. hard. <laughs> it's hard for me to see my son's. I could see when he was struggling, but it was okay. hard to see. I could see why the system didn't fit him. I see. And like his reward for attending to, to whatever he had to do. Mm-hmm he didn't want a sticker. He wanted to walk out in nature. So he got to do a walk around the school if he did whatever he was supposed to, which is more lenient time school doors were open Mm -hmm. and you could walk outside. Right. I feel really, really feel for kids now with new school rules that, you know, parents can't come into the classroom and everything's a lot more locked down. And there was a girl in his class and I'm like, just follow Brooke, do whatever Brooke does. If Brooke gets pencils, you get pencils. So I would try to give him suggestions. And anytime I brought suggestions from the neuropsych or my reading, and I have a friend that worked with ADHD children, Mm -hmm. and she would give me, I would say, could you adapt this certain ruler with the alphabet Mm -hmm. in a way on the kid's desk? The teacher would say, that's a great idea. Let's do that for everyone.
0: Yeah, it is. it is. And it's really interesting that you talk about that Because I remember a time when I was sharing with somebody else, when I took my child to camp and in the beginning, they didn't even want to read the rules, right? Even though they said that except ADHD children, they didn't even want to read them. And then, so they had a very rough week with him to say the least. And so after having a very long detailed conversation with them they did look at that list. They not only read the list, they use a lot of those techniques for the other children. And that's what people don't realize is that a lot of the things that they do works for other kids and really should be in practice for other children. So
1: I can't think of one intervention that I ever brought into the classroom that the teacher didn't say that's a great idea from binders with, you know, you know, organize your work. And I had the time then to be in the classroom, you know, I was telling my son this the other day, what I would do is go in the morning, drop the kids off, make that transition. Cause you could say hi to the teachers. And then I would go Xerox for an hour. Mm. I would pick up whatever they had to Xerox for the three teachers. I'd spend an hour at the Xerox machine. Cause I knew if I did that, those teachers would, instead of you know, what either get a lunch or a coffee break or do something else rather than this manual copying I could copy. So I really tried to, when trainings came in for my son, I tried to incorporate them and buy the book for the teacher. So she could make sense, you know, provide all of the skills. Orton Gillingham had been for dyslexia years before when my father had been superintendent in that school, but it had gotten out of, they would lost, you know, things change. So I put a lot of energy in Mm -hmm. to being there and I had the time and the privilege to do that when they were in middle school and high school, not so much, but by that point they had really, my son had really had the skills and it was hard. I mean, we picked him up and in the middle of the day and he went to see a tutor Mm -hmm. 45 minutes away, he missed birthday parties. He missed Miss things. But, you know, and I always would explain to him, I'm like, I like the hunter farmer. He said he was a hunter and his twin brother was a farmer. And I said, we're in a farmer's world. So to fit into the farmer's world, you need a tutor, medication, and adjusting our behaviors to fit in the rule of the land, which is theirs. If we lived in a rainforest, your brother would be in a tutor taking medications and having adaptive strategies taught to him because he wouldn't survive in a forest in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But you with the hunter brain, you know, and so I discussed the pros and cons of each or the yeah. the strengths and limitations of each one. so I just said this happens to be the time that we lived. you know if if we lived in a sailing village 200 years ago you'd be a cabin boy out on the you know yeah. we lived in the you know in the in the west you would be riding horses every day. so mm-hmm. we're not. You don't match the particular skill set that they're looking for right now in this time in your life. So we're helping you along but it's not anything wrong with you. it's just a mismatch between your environment and your skill set.
0: No, I like that. And you're actually sharing a lot of gems, you know, through this. But one of the things that you guys are doing or that you did was meet them exactly where each of your child was, right? So you brought, you really taught them the techniques to help them be successful. And that is so important is understanding your child.
1: And it's hard when they're twins because they were, I mean, I, I I tried to raise um, that, you know, you always have your brother's back and, you know, mm-hmm. family comes first. And, you know, they were very different. They were, mm-hmm. you know, night and day different. And yeah. the one with ADHD would cry and was very emotional and, and would get upset about things. You know, he, social justice was so important. Yeah. To yeah. And if somebody was stealing each other, someone, there were two girls and one would steal the other or one would negotiate and take the other one's popcorn every day. <laughs> And my son like felt that. like it was wrong. It got to the point where the teacher's like, if you get up to negotiate this conflict between these two girls, you will be in trouble. You cannot, you know, you cannot stick up for the younger or the uh, the underdog in this situation. But I mean, just kill my son. He's like, she's so mean to her. I gotta. And eventually the crowd kind of turned on him. And, and I know that my his brother struggled whether to step in, but if, you know, Mm. six kids are teasing your brother, you know, and you're you're looking at your brother crying in third grade, you know, it's not like you're an eighth grader, you're the same age. Right. Right. So I think they did. I remember once the non ADD twins said to the other one, well, you're in special ed and I'm in, you know, I'm in academically talented, you know, and I, I just, I was driving the car. I drove them right to the school and I dumped them off at the social worker. And I go, Mm -hmm. you know, resolve this between them. And it was interesting because all my boys started out in special ed, even the one without ADHD, he had speech issues. So they all started out in special ed and then they all were in special ed and then took oral exams to get into the academically talented. So I had both ends of the spectrum, you know? Yeah. So it was this just cross section of, you know, children in both ends. And there were some people that felt that my child, that I had three children in academically talented, which I think is so terribly named and that I had three children in there. And then that must be, you know, some privilege that I had because Mm -hmm. they probably, you know, all three of them. Yeah. And, the, mm. and and they had obviously been in special ed. So, you know, the, the whole mother track was I, I still want to go back to elementary school and just say that whole academically talented thing is just so we would go in and we would teach the other talented and, you know, Uh, a whole other thing about that. And it was great that there was academically talented, but I always thought that the ADHD kids, and I know that there's a couple of groups that do this now do an inventor program, you know, the kids that don't Mm -hmm. get in that. And it's generally the kids that aren't academically talented. They're the ones that need the enrichment.
0: Yeah, I do agree with that. So let me ask you, so if parents are trying to decide, so two things, if parents are trying to decide to get their children diagnosed, or they're trying to decide to get themselves diagnosed, what would your recommendation be? Because people are going back and forth. Some don't believe in the diagnosis. Some are afraid of the stigma, but what would your advice be if they're trying to decide for themselves or for their children, whether to get diagnosed or not, or to get well, tested or not?
1: So I'm still learning with, from a point of cultural humility about a diagnosis if you're a child of color and I do believe in systemic racism and I do believe that there are biases. And so I don't know that piece, but as far as a parent getting a 15 page document on my child was incredibly important. And it was incredibly expensive. They were about $4,000. I think we found someone that was more like 2000. And then insurance gave us maybe some portion back, but Mm -hmm. doing it was always a big internal conflict in the marriage because the amount of money that it would cost, but it was basically, I felt, you know, instructions to your brain. It's like, yeah. are you going to buy, well, men don't read directions in general, but are you going to buy a, you know, a microwave and not have the instructions with it? Right. Yeah. I I think every kid should get a neuropsych. I think it should just be a part of, Hey, you know, we're going to do an, we're, let's figure out what kind of brain you have. You have a, this kind of brain. It works yeah. well in this environment. It doesn't And I have always gone to neuropsychs that sit down with my kids and draw pictures with them and say, hey, look, here's your brain on sleep. Here's your brain not on sleep. Mm -hmm. And if you go to college and you drink heavily on the weekends, your attention, which is average, is going to fall to blue average, you know? So all the way through from elementary school through college, our kids had neuropsychs every five or six years. We found it helpful. I think that their dad would say we spent too much money on it at a time where, where we ended up not having money, but it certainly was a document to get a 504, which really is essential for my kids. The testing they were allowed, the stand at the time you couldn't get extra time with standardized. The SATs were almost impossible to get extra time, but you never know along that pathway when you're going to need that. Right. So the neurosight was important to the 504, and a 504 teachers have to follow it, whether they agree with it or not. And that a lot of that stuff from high school does translate to college. So Unfortunately, I think it's really important now, depending on the school district, you know, labeling and what happens to your kid when that label goes on, I think that has to be an individual, but we always did them outside of school. We always picked the neurologist. We had one, we had the school did an, the school did one for my son and they said his attention was fine. And I'm like, when did you examine him? And they said, oh in the library. And I'm like, okay, in the library. In what the were library? they doing? Yeah. And he's like, oh, they were watching a video. Like literally you're examining. And that may have been the time that he had free, you know, because school psychologists are doing so many things. So I wanted to control that I knew that, you know, my son had eaten and had slept and right. had gone in and was comfortable. And it wasn't like, five different minutes, you know, before he was supposed to go out for recess, you know, or something like that. So again, it was expensive. And there were times where, you know, I couldn't find anybody and we had to wait a couple of years to get reconnected. So it is a financial, it's a financial burden. Yeah. So that, that being said, getting, you know, my, you know, getting eight hours of testing on your kids, we did it in two different days the information that I found was very useful. But then in the end, it's a report, right? And if you know your kid and you can work with your teachers and work with a tutor and get those strategies implemented, you know, and you don't need the report. I mean, it's hard to tell. I took my children to speech therapy for many years. I never did the homework with them. I hated the homework. I I spent a lot of money on speech therapy. We never did the work and a lot of it didn't work. So in the end, it's what you want to put your energy into, right? right? So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. The report shouldn't go in a file. The report should be an active document that you're working on. And if you already know what your kid needs, you know, and I think, I mean, I do these 128 questions of Ned Hollowell's Every Night at Clubhouse, and it's, it's not a diagnostic test. It's not validated. There's nothing in it that is on any official test in the world, but it's 128 questions. And if you read the 128 questions, you hang out in our room a couple nights and you like it there. It's a diagnosis, to, you know. Right. I think self diagnosis has a, a role. Right. Now, is it going to get you a 504? Is it going to get extra time on your SATs? Is it going to get, you know, a college disability? No. So, So really the question is, is
0: you really have to ask yourself, why do you need it? Or why are you looking for the diagnosis? I mean, that's the bottom line. So depending on what direction you're going to take it, we'll determine if you get the diagnosis or not. Right.
1: It is expensive. I mean, and a lot of these doctors, the neuropsychs, it's cash up front and then they give you codes and then you send it in. So, you know, it's very easy to say, oh yes, you should have that treatment. And I've had, I've had years where I didn't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. you know, and and stepping up to whatever medical care puts you down. So yeah. I, I do want to acknowledge that they are expensive schools. Sometimes we'll do them. And if that's the option and you can follow along what they're doing, you know, that's, if you can get it paid for by someone, other institution, that's great too. All right. So
0: let's move into the pink concussions. So What made you
1: start this nonprofit organization? It was merely to have a place to direct parents that I thought were being kind of neglectful of their girls. Mm. And my son, the twin that did not have ADD and dyslexia had six concussions in 13 months Mm. and was really struggling. He missed most of sixth grade and part of seventh grade. And it was a profound impact on our family to have him home right at the point I was supposed to be going back to work. Literally, like two days before, and so I was home with him. And when I had take, would took him to doctors, which was pretty comfortable in going to the medical community and advocating for my kids. They didn't have really great answers, so I had started going to concussion conferences for doctors and nurses, medical professionals, learned bunch. The CDC had put some information out on their new program. I was running the lacrosse league at the time. So I was training our coaches with this new CDC information. And then the football team said, can you train ours? So I was pretty much doing youth sports. Okay. I was kind of the concussion mom. A lot of people mm-hmm. were calling me, but I noticed this pattern that boy, Parents, I had three boys, so we didn't really interact with girls at all until this point. Once they got to be like 14, girls were all over it. At this point, they were avoiding us. didn't know many people that had girls. But so when the boy parents would call, they would call saying, we've left the ER. We've left the mountain. This happened yesterday. This happened today. What do I do? Okay. And I had this one hour chat where I could really explain as a social worker how to live with a kid with an acute concussion. I wasn't okay. giving medical advice, but I was giving right. life advice. The girl parents would call me, it's been three weeks and we still can't get her out of her room. Mm. Or it was two months ago and now she has intense headaches. And they were so out of the time zone where the boy parents were calling me. Mm. So I figured they were all neglectful. Like, I'm just like, why didn't you take your girl for care? And I do know that a study in 2012 said if you fell in the backyard and you had a possible head injury, you had a 50-50 chance of your parent taking you for medical care. If you fall in a sporting event with a crowd, with some people around, right. you have an 80% chance. Gotcha. And I think it's also as a parent, you're like, yeah, wow, I got to take this kid, you know, right. and, and at home, you probably didn't see it. If five or six people see your kid collide with another kid and they're asking you, there's going to be more general concern than, oh, I just fell off my bike. You know, here's a nice pack. So I got tired of, and, and it was, to explain to these parents so far out, it was a lot more work. And so uh, then the patterns like it can't just be boy parents, girl parents. So then I started looking in the research, and I found sex differences that no one was talking about. I pulled all that research together. I came up with the name Pink Concussions, put up a website because I, I had been building websites on the side because I wasn't couldn't get back to a day to day job, and I I was going to refer them like okay you have a girl that's two months out, go read the research. And I got cancer, had a year sitting in chemotherapy and radiation and thought about this and thought it should be more than a website. It should be a meeting. What if I pulled in all of these experts? So I spent the whole year planning in 2016. I had the first international conference on Mm. female brain injury, but it literally started out as a website to refer parents that, You know, and these parents would come distraught. You know, she isn't the same person. Of course. You know, and I'm like, well, why didn't she get? For I really, very rarely, if all, had a boy in that situation. So,
0: what type of services does Pink Concussions offer?
1: So, we have links to research. We have videos, short, two to three minute videos, which I guess would be considered like a TikTok on different topics, Mm -hmm. and. We have a YouTube channel now where I interview experts. We have a domestic violence brain injury task force. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of, our largest catch all is we have 14 groups on Facebook that are support groups that have, you know, like a moderator. We have volunteers that check to make sure, you know, those are private groups where you can join. I think we have like 30, I think we have 8,000 across 13 or 14 groups. We have like 3,500 in the women over age 25. We have a veterans group. They're all different types of groups. You can join all of them or none of them. Some have Mm -hmm. men in them, like the caregivers group, parenting group, and it's just for peer-to-peer sharing. And they're over three years old now and, and very popular and, people find information but generally uplifting it's yeah. it's building community circles those are all free we don't have any component that i mean everything we do is free i'm a volunteer anybody that helps we have a professional advisory board i mean it exists because people donate their time and their okay. expertise and it's interesting because i've identified more as somebody with a brain injury And then when my son was born, I'm like, oh, wow, ADHD, that's, you know, so I've moved more from brain injury determined how I interact to more ADD, Gotcha. but with my ADD background and my multiple concussions, I can also understand what people that have long-term persistent symptoms in brain injury have. Mm. The one real difference is I don't remember not being ADHD. Mm. And I did have a brain injury when I was two, and I had always stemmed a lot of my issues on that brain injury. But then when my son was born without a brain injury, I'm like, oh, genetics. So I don't have the hindrance that many, many people in brain injury where I could do this before my injury. I ran an office of 40 people, I could shop, mm-hmm. I could do everything. And now that my TBI has happened, I cannot do those things and I'm struggling. And that mm-hmm. differential of accepting your neurodiversity at this point versus before is really tough.
0: Let me ask you, so, well, the first question is how many women, I mean, what's typical for brain injuries or for concussions for women? What, do you know what the stats are? About that, because obviously a lot of it's not reported, or people don't have a way reported. to help them, but just the ones that are is it quite a bit? Is the same as men or different?
1: So, overall, in numbers, there's twice as much brain injury in men as there in as women. Okay, and that number is really basically, you know, if this is the difference in men's concussions, women's concussions, mm-hmm. it starts out pretty much the same. And at birth and those toddler years, maybe boys are a little more adventurous. And then you get five to twenty five and the men are up here twice as many as women. And then as you get to 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it kind of they align again. But that five to twenty five year olds point is when the men are taking risks. They do more stupid things, more access to firearms, more access to cars. I see history. they up until recently they drank more now unfortunately the liquor industry has been really focused on increasing the amount that women drink especially hitting that those mothers you know mm. they have pushed moms and wine they pushed women into wine after childcare you know it's they had to, we were trying to bring back the 1950s 60s cocktail when you get home from work right and they hit up the mommies You know, mommy's wine, wine and wine thing, you know, it's five o'clock. You deserve a glass of wine. Yeah. So unfortunately we may see some shifting in that, but basically men do more stupid things. They take more risk. Mm -hmm. They have twice as much a brain injury along the lifespan. If you take those teenage years and the other ones, women also live longer at that point, And then they're right. alone. Mostly they tend to outlive their spouses. So there's a danger element for the women there. But if, let's say you take away that risk factor mm-hmm. and that I'm going to jump from the roof to the pool, or I'm yeah, going to take right. my bike on the top of the playground and yes, take away all that stuff, which my boys, and I was a girl that would follow the boys through any trees or any lake, you know, so I, I was following the boys, but take like soccer boys and girls have the same rules okay mm-hmm. you really can't go too much out of the box the rules you know if you play incredibly aggressively you're going to get pulled for a foul right. so right. the risk is about the same in that situation the girls concuss at twice the rate of boys That's we have a biological variable it, at the cellular level that makes us more vulnerable to concussion. And we just mm. saw that two years ago, the papers that came out that will show at the nanotubular, which is the tiniest cell level that we can see at this point, women have, there are these strands that make up this nanotubular and women have fewer strands and they're more slender. The men have, you know, a thicker neuro bunching, but it also in general, those, so those are the sex, the biological differences, but they're also, uh, gender differences where is there an athletic trainer at the girls volleyball game is the athletic trainer at the boys football game, you know, did she drive home and study all night? And then her symptoms came out the next morning, you know, and her parents didn't think the way a boy's parents who, May or may not be more aware. Okay. Boys have concussions in their video games, their first person shooter games. You know, they're trying to concuss people all the time, hours and hours during the day on video games. There isn't a girl's equivalent like my little pretty pony concusses the other pretty right. pony, you know? Right. So, Christine Master, Dr. Christine Master at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, did a study last year where they showed at the ER level girls are taken in about 4 or 5 days later than boys and then they felt that girls recover taking longer to recover that when they adjusted for that that the boys and girls were recovering about the same time okay so if you give girls equal medical care that helps their recovery. So we still, have you know, it's, and it's hard to map one, you know, who's, where's there a control? There's not a control boys to girls and brain injury is such a fluid injury to healing, to it's hard to line all this up, but we definitely know there's sex differences and we definitely know that there's gender differences. So let me a, And then on top of that, okay. there's access to medical care. Mm. So you know, most of these studies are, you know, sports doctors, white children of privilege that are in sporting events or NCAA athletes. We don't know about the kids that may not have access to medical care or their parents are working or, you know, there are many reasons that children aren't taken into care. And these are all for the active ones. So you had just asked about total numbers. I think of it as an iceberg on the top of the water are the sports, the ones you can talk about and then below the iceberg are intimate partner violence, abuse, domestic violence, workplace violence, you know, car accident. But you refuse medical care, but now you're home and now people think you're doing it to get, you know, the right. lawsuits can be. So there's so many more. Yeah. And I think we say, you know, two to three million a year above gotcha. the water line.
0: That's amazing. So let me ask you, so when is it truly a brain injury situation? So like, for example, I was in an accident and I had a mild concussion, but had no had no issues after that. So when is it when it's truly a problem?
1: It's kind of smoke and mirrors. Okay. You know, I'm not a neurologist. I'm generally, when somebody calls me and I talk to them, I generally you know, have a good idea whether they're going to be diagnosed or not. They're desperately trying to come out. There was a recent release last week of a saliva test that they used on male rugby players in the UK that very subset group, but they felt like the saliva test correlated with the, whether they were concussed or not. They're looking Mm. at blood tests. They're looking other than that though, you know, if there's a dog lying on the ground and you're trying to decide whether it's dead or alive, you know, you take your foot and you poke it. Right. Like, can I see signs of life? Right. I mean, that's kind of what they're doing with the concussion. They're like, you've come to me, you've said you had a concussion. They're always going to, you, you've been in a car accident. They're always going to try to see if they can invoke symptoms, mm. you know, with a light in your eye, with doing the saccade right. testing, right. you know, with mm-hmm. the, you know, all the, yeah. They're, you know, stand on one foot, close your eyes. I remember all of that. (laughs) Yeah. So they're trying to figure it out. So there are two classifications in general. There are three. There's mild TBI Mm -hmm. and then there's moderate and severe. And there's this Glasgow coma scale that they use, you know, and, and, and there was at a time we looked at if you were unconscious or not, Mm -hmm. and they used to grade for, Second degree, first degree, you know, depending on how long you've been unconscious. That that got thrown out. Bob Cantu put that in when there was nothing else to do and it turned out not to be very valid. So they threw it out. But, you know, they keep trying things. Brain injury is the unwanted stepchild of neurology. The other fields, Alzheimer's and all this, like they pat us on the head, but they really don't really. I don't feel like they want us at the table, you know. So so we are a new field, we're a a young field and we're learning stuff all the time. And we may not have the money or the track record that mm-hmm. some of the bigger neurology branches have, but we're getting there. A lot of all the research was done on men. Oh wow. And especially college-age white men in the 50s and 60s and then as football became more integrated race was included, but in general, you're talking about men that are capable of playing football. So even it, you know, extrapolating across, you know, that's a pretty elite group of people that can show up for that kind of, but you cannot bruise or damage people's brains in a laboratory. Mm. So when the brain injury doctors were looking for a place, like where can we find brain injury? They're like, oh, football. So that's why they ended up at the football fields because they knew brain injury was happening there. Gotcha. So that was, you know, the guinea pigs. And now a lot of those sports docs are interested now in studying domestic violence because, you know, the research shows that between 70 to 90% of the women in domestic violence shelters uh, will have brain injuries too. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Right. And unfortunately, you look in prisons too, and male and female prison populations, you know, depending on the study, 50 to 60% of people in prison have brain injuries. So it really is this hidden part. And if you don't get help, you will proba- the probability is that you will, for some reason, end up tangling with the law. Okay. And legally, I mean, and, and then you have systemized racism on how your brain injury is interpreted and what help you get and the justice system. Right. So unfortunately, I, I think that brain injury for some groups and some ages ends up being, you know, a direct line to prison. Mm -hmm. So it's really important back at the beginning to get the right care and help and assistance quickly. So your overall question, there are people that have a car accident or a sports injury and may have concussive like symptoms there's no scan to prove whether they did or not. They'll say you have a mild TBI, which means mm-hmm. you don't have a severe one. You're not in the right. hospital with a tube down your throat. Correct. But it's not a mild concussion. And a mild TBI can have years of effects on your life or months of effects on your life. The only thing that makes it mild is you aren't in an ICU unit. I see. That makes but sense. But it's a bad term because it, it's people are like, concussion. yeah. You know, it's like, you know well done or a rare steak determines how the meat is cooked. Right. Right. And a mild TBI does not mean that it's going to be mild for you. It just means in that moment, you're not an ICU unit. My next thing is, so I read that you suffered
0: a concussion at the age of 16 and plus having ADHD. Has the combination made your experience worse? Did you have struggles? Did it make it stronger? I mean, like, how does the combination make sense? Or how does the
1: combination work for you? I'm still learning about this. And again, the research hasn't come up with a complete answer yet. But looking at this, ADHD is a risk factor. Learning disabilities are a risk factor for a... Extended recovery from a concussion. Okay. And I was talking to Dr. Ned Hollowell, and he sees a real connection with ADHD people, mm. either being risk taking or impulsive and getting concussions. And so I held my first room on concussions and ADHD just from a peer perspective. I'm still fleshing that out, but it is risk factors for having a long uh, recovery that is difficult. And that could be, I mean, they're saying now women are about 22 to 33 days or, and your symptoms can go away, but your balance still can be off your eyesight. Were you told not to drive for a couple of days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are things where it isn't apparent until you're, you know, jump on a skateboard. Oh, my balance isn't what I thought it was. So there's this recovery period. You know, it's not like you have red spots and the red spots go away and you're fine. There can be things that are going on neuro- neurologically that take some time. So say that's 22 to 33 days. Longer than that, some of the risk factors are being a female, having someone in your family that has a migraine situation, ADD, dyslexia, learning disabilities, having a previous concussion, having vestibular issues like you're a person that gets car sick. Mm you know, motion sickness. Hmm. And it, t- it tends to exacerbate the things that you had leading up to it. So, hmm.
0: and, you know, it's really interesting because you really don't know if to your point, you're, you're told it is mild, but unless you really understand the symptoms, what could come out of a concussion, like I really don't know if anything, even though I just said, it sounds like my life was fine, but you know, I don't know if any of the situations that I had was due to the concussion. Like I've fainted a couple times in my life. And so there's little things that have happened since then, but I never thought it might be due to, it may not be, but I'm just saying in terms right. of, because I just don't have that education. So.
1: Right. And there are, there are people that, that get concussed and, you know, two, three days, there's a family that literally every time they get a concussion, they're finding like three days. And that in my family, you know, we're out for months at a time time. So there are genetic predispositions for things Mm -hmm. in particular families, There are genetic codes, there's, you know, stress factors, Mm. you know, is the family going through a divorce at the time? You know, has there just been a death in the family? Like any of that stuff just exacerbates what's going on. I see. So it could be a combination of, you know, your parents getting divorced, you have a concussion, you have the SATs coming up, And you've never faced any of this before. And it's all this multiple layers of stuff, you know, and it's never particularly simple. And if there's something below a mental health condition or addiction, or there's some struggle that is below the surface, having a concussion can bring that up and, you know, be another thing to tackle. But I have found that diagnosis awareness and If you don't have the right medical team, find the right medical team. If you don't feel like people believe you are taking you seriously or have a system, systemic bias against you for whatever, whatever reason that be, you know, you know, and we do make assumptions. I have seen the assumptions be made about women. Well, she was emotional before the concussion, or you know, she was a little off her rocker, you know. And so I've seen the female ones and we, you know, and I have learned we didn't have many women of color in our groups. And that's been something that's really bothered me over the last couple of years. And now through clubhouse and and interacting with more people. We have, I have been able to hear this great group on the black community and mental health I was telling you about, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm learning more about cultural reasons that maybe different groups don't reach out to mental health professionals. And then when they do reach out, they don't see anyone that looks like them, that understands the perspective that they're coming from. You know, I stepped over this gap where my culture says this isn't really the thing to do. And you're not meeting me halfway and don't understand how hard it was for me to walk in the door. So exactly. You know, and again, I am I am a white woman who has mostly had health insurance and most of the time, you know, wasn't in debt. And Mm -hmm. I've seen my own personal struggles as a single mom trying to get stuff. So, you know, put race, ethnicity, whether you just immigrated from another country, English is your first language, you know every different layer. So I can't speak as from an authentic perspective from that, but the stories I hear are every layer just puts, puts it further down. And especially with an invisible illness or injury. And I think also, I mean, it's the same thing with ADHD where it's invisible. You appear to be normal. And Mm -hmm. if your behavior is off target, then that must be some moral, moral flaw about you. Okay, so if you're going to be judged from a moral flaw perspective, Mm. you know, I don't want to wear, you know, a brain injury or TBI on my forehead. And I know my stepfather and my my stepfather was labeled as learning disabled, and he felt like he sat in a room with three pencils for most of his educational experience and did one semester of college and never went back. My mother had had the experience in city schools dealing with kids that were struggling with poverty and social issues and, and integration. And, and she, you know, so the two of them were terrified that I'd be labeled. They were really frightened of it. So I think a lot of it was kept from me. So I found this out in the forties and neither of them were alive to find out the answer, but I know that the fear of me being labeled was very deep for my mom. So
0: just to kind of close things up, if people wanted to just understand more about concussions or more about the combination of ADHD and concussions. Is there any information? I mean we're going to talk about your information next, but is there any other information, be it books or YouTube channels or podcasts or any other resources out there for people to just read about it?
1: On concussions. On concussions. Um, I mean I always refer everybody to the CDC. Okay. The CDC has a lot of different, you know, sports concussions, domestic violence concussions. So that was the pit bull flipping her ears, which makes this kind of flipping sound. So, yeah, I mean, I always refer people to the FD- CDC. There were people for a while in brain injury that were trying to kind of get their own spin on it. But okay. it's just best to return. They, you know, is this, I mean, the same way we do with vaccines and and COVID. It's, it's best to go to, you know, and, you know, they put out what they feel that they can. It may not be the. the the second of the cutting edge, but it's standardized and presented in a way. It's also in English and Spanish and I think a couple other languages. So I really like the CDC stuff. BrainLine is another organization and the military has a lot of stuff. The VA and a lot of the military stuff is also standardized in a way and focused on work, return to work. Domestic violence. There's a, a really great one called brain injured and abused. I have a resource list too on pink concussions. So perfect. Again, I think it's starting with the CDC and then adding in what different issues. And again, it's a new field every six months, something changes. Okay. So stay tuned. Understood. So any last minute thoughts,
0: anything that we didn't talk about any last minute tidbits that you want to share with the audience?
1: No, it's been very fascinating. So thank you. It's the first time I'm Coordinating these two pieces of myself. And even though I was diagnosed 17 years ago, I read two books and talked to my friend and kind of went on. So Clubhouse was my first opportunity to be in a room with 30 or 40 people with ADHD that you know we 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 generally have people from Saudi Arabia, we have people from Iran, we have people from Japan, we have people from the UK and the EU cross cultures, yeah. cross languages. And, and like, we're all laughing at the same thing about, you know, burning the, the toast. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> who, who, who put the toast in there? Well, I guess I did. You know, I know I can't tell you how many times I go yes. to the microwave and I have my tea in there. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I forgot the tea, you know, yeah. and it's cold now. <laughs> it's like, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I really ever finished it. Actually. I think I'd finished finish them out. So I, you know, I have them all over the house. So, but, but you know, the, you know, a friend, a woman that I've met, you know, was laughing about that from Saudi Arabia, right? When when would we ever meet each other? Right. Exactly. And, And I think of my ADHD as a superpower. It's very hard, I think, to think of a brain injury as a superpower, but I'm hoping to take that superpower concept and say neurodiversity, whether you got there from brain injury or birth or genetics, you know, how can you, Get an instruction pack for the neurodiversity you have at the moment, and, and right. do the best. I would not trade my ADHD. If someone said this will erase it, and you can be uh, neuro basic or neuro average or you know basic brain, there are all these different terms, but I wouldn't get rid of it because I think it, it. I wouldn't have come up with pink concussions if I hadn't been a neurodiverse person. Right. So right. my greatest accomplishments and my greatest hindrance came from the same source. So I would prefer to keep it. It's just so much more fun to have people talk about it with now, right? Right, and that Can't really you, you too, about, you know. Yeah. Right. So,
0: thank you for uh, chatting with me. Absolutely, I loved it. And if they have any more questions for you specifically, can you share your website? Can you share your Instagram? Yeah, channel? yeah. Um, and
1: I'm I'm on Pink Concussions. My phone number is there. Every social media, Instagram. We don't have TikTok, but we have Instagram, YouTube channel, Facebook, Twitter. In concussions. I have about, I think most well, close to 9,000 followers on Twitter, which just nice. amazed me that they're are 9,000. It, it, it I think they're are 84 different countries. Nice. So it just fascinates me because all I talk about is women and brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And it's neat to now be in the ADHD space again and feel and see everybody's done the work on women in ADHD. Like, I feel like there's really nothing like it's, it's all, it's been, it's a, a much more mature topic than when mm-hmm. I checked last checked in 17 years ago. Mm. Y'all been doing great work. But
0: <laughs> well, it's really interesting though. I mean, this whole ADHD direction has been very interesting to me and I've learned so much as I was going through this journey. So yeah, it's just cool. It's just, I know, I know people don't always think it's cool, but for me, because I have a different perspective, I started the journey with my children and then got diagnosed later. So for me it was validation and it just made me feel whole. So it was a very positive experience for me. And I know people struggle and I I empathize with that. So, but it's just been a very interesting journey for me. So
1: yeah. Yeah. And and I I, you know, I, I do think that that, you know, that labeling of our children, you know, I I I can empathize with they, you know, not wanting to stick that label on them. And I think it's up to us as advocates to really educate and inform people that I don't believe it's a disorder. I do believe it's a trait. I do believe that most of the most amazing men and women in the world had this trait. Yeah. So
0: Yeah. So thanks for the time. It's very fun. Yes. Thank you, Catherine. I look forward to working with you on clubhouse. So yeah, see you on clubhouse. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of ADHD, love parent talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave a review and join me as I talk with another exciting guest next week. Have a wonderful day.